Hello everyone, it's September 11th, 2018. This week, the SLS mobile launcher was rolled out, and now they just need a rocket. We also have a post-analysis of that Exos launch. They had a mobile launcher issue of their own, you might say. That's all I'll say for now, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 175 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Hello, guys. So basically, we put uh, Valentin in a chrysalis and left him there for a week, and Dennis came out. Yeah, that's um, what happened. Yeah, so uh, we we all love Valentin, and he loved us, and everything was going great. And then good news is he got a job. Bad news, he can't record with us anymore. So um, he's not disappearing. I mean, obviously, he's been a fan of the show for a while, so... You know, at least we'll hear his name in this week in spaceflight history for a while. Um, but we're, I, I have a segment I'm going to plug him into at some point uh, where he can record. You know, not on Sunday mornings. So we, you know, we all kind of were really, really bummed, but we had to we had to say goodbye to Valentine, and so now um, we went to uh, another candidate who really looked fantastic to us, and this is Dennis. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Ben. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I, first I want to say that Valentin was great. So I know I've got pretty big shoes to follow from last week, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. I'm Dennis. I'm an astronomer in Arizona. I've been doing this for about 10 years now, and I never really knew too much about spaceflight until, to be honest, playing kind of Kerbal Space Program mm, and all the recent mm-hmm. achievements that have been going on, because it really seems like yeah. it's taken off in the last mm-hmm. And years. What version of of uh, Kerbal Space Program did you start playing in? I don't actually remember the name of the version or anything. It was 2014, okay. and so that's a long I, time ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, and I've only recently got my first space station to go. I had such a tough time learning how to dock, so um, <laughs> that's why I'm an astronomer, not an engineer. I guess I'm <laughs> terrible at that. But yeah, so I'm super excited to be here with you guys and uh, getting to learn some new things about spaceflight. And so you're an astronomer in Arizona. So do you live there specifically because of that? Because I hear that it's probably the best state to do actual like nighttime astronomy. I mean, I don't know if that's the kind that you do, but. Oh, no. Yeah, totally. So I, I first moved out here. I'm from New Jersey originally. And I uh, came out here for my grad program. And we literally have in all the cardinal directions, research grade telescopes, including to the west of us, Kitt Peak, which only place on Earth with 23 telescopes all on the same ridge and so it's uh definitely a place that astronomers and planetary scientists find themselves passing through at some point or another in their careers so i uh i just you know i've been teaching at the community college here uh i don't really do much research anymore but i've been loving that so (laughs) yeah definitely the night skies are actually pretty ridiculous when i first got here i was wandering around a neighborhood at one point and noticed something was off and it turns out that a lot of streets just don't have street lights mm. to cut down on noise pollution or do you mean light pollution <laughs> or sorry uh yes to cut down <laughs> on light pollution oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i've 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 never been to arizona and i really want to go just for that reason i mean perhaps some other reasons too i guess but i mean mainly that one because it's just i, I hear stories of how beautiful the night skies are and mm-hmm. and plus i'm kind of fascinated with deserts yeah there's nothing like it back east um although the one thing i miss that you guys have are the color like green you know, green leaves out here, (laughs) different shades of brown. But, uh, oh, I love it so much. All right. Welcome, Dennis. Please don't leave us. Please don't get a better job and leave us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I ain't going nowhere, probably. (laughs) 
So time to move on then to this week in spaceflight history. We just have one winner this week. And, it, you know, it's it's not even a complete winner, but I figured it was worth including because it's a totally uh, legitimate. I mean, he, he kind of guessed the right the right event. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. OK, let me let me do this the right way. The clue from last week was first to second. And our winner is Ian Soddy, who guessed the correct event. So this week in spaceflight history is the 11th of September, 1962. It was the selection of NASA astronaut training group number two. So he guessed it was actually the admission of Ed White as an as a NASA astronaut. Um, he cited the 17th of September. Um, so I guess uh, the 11th was the announcement. And the 17th was when they were actually doing the paperwork. Um, but anyway, so uh, Ed White was the first American to do a spacewalk in 1965, but he was the second human to ever do a spacewalk. So first and I guess that'd be first and second. Um, my clue was first is second. And so the way I was thinking about it was uh, the first man to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong, was part of the second astronaut training group. So that's that's the way I was thinking about it. But, you know, Ian got there through a very uh, also a very clever way of doing I mean, like it totally, totally works. So uh, the second uh, astronaut training group was called the New Nine. Of course, the first group was called the Mercury Seven. So the New Nine uh, included just a bunch of really famous names. Uh, seven of them actually were awarded Congressional Space Medal of Honors or Congressional Spaces Medal. Space, ah, Congressional Space Medals of Honor. There we go. There go. Uh, so, of course, uh, Neil Armstrong uh, got one for being the first man on the moon. And interestingly enough, he wanted to be in, uh, considered for Mercury 7, but he couldn't, even, he couldn't even get into training because he was a civilian. And the first training group was only open to military personnel. Uh, and then next was Frank Borman, who got a medal for commanding the first crewed mission to the moon on Apollo 8. Uh, then Pete Conrad, who commanded uh, Skylab 2 and saved the station. We've talked about that in the past. There were two people in the new nine who actually were competing to be in the Mercury 7 and failed. Pete Conrad was one because uh, he, he kind of freaked out. Do, do either of you guys know about this story about? Pete Conrad in the in the first NASA training group. No, I don't think I do. But <laughs> so uh, he was very very put off by the invasive training that they had to do, and like famously, he was asked to submit a stool sample, <laughs> and he gift wrapped it before he handed it in, and uh, they were doing uh, ink blot tests. And one of them, he uh, said, looked like two people having sex and then like went into drastic detail uh, about what the sex was. Um, and then they, during the ink block test, they gave him an, a blank ink blot pad or, you know, a, a card that didn't have any ink blots on it. He turned it upside down and handed it back. He said, here, this was upside down. Mm-hmm. Just like all of these, you know, very snarky, I think wonderful reactions to just very invasive, really horrible things that these people had to go through. And, you know, there are two reactions. It's kind of like um, if you guys have ever applied to work for like a grocery store and they make you do a personality test, like the questions are, which sentence do you identify with more? Uh, a, I'm a psychopathic killer. B, I will do anything to help the company. You know, it's like that. Like <laughs> w- when you take those tests, like you know what the right answer is. And so Conrad obviously knew what the right answer was. And m- 
almost everybody gave the correct answer, but he gave the true answer that was in his heart, which is, you know, off. Um, (laughs) You know, God God bless Pete Conrad. Then uh, next up was Jim Lovell, who won a medal for commanding Apollo 13. Um, He was the second person who um, was in competition to be in the Mercury 7, Um, but he failed due to uh, a blood, a thing in his blood, uh, Billy Rubin, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, basically it's, uh, when you're keeping your blood clean, one of the things you have to do is produce red blood cells. And then of course you have to destroy old red blood cells. And part of the string of chemicals that are required to break down hemoglobin is bilirubin i think is how it's pronounced um and anyway so he he had this you know weird thing in his blood that was artificially high probably because you know he was so stressed out and was uh destroying blood red blood cells so quickly then uh thomas uh thomas p stafford is how i have this in the notes uh tom stafford uh commanded the apollo soyuz test project and got a medal of honor ed white got a medal of honor because of the apollo one disaster which i I don't think we've even really talked about on the show because it's um such a somber topic that i'm afraid to not do it justice well we certainly mentioned it quite a bit i know that okay it's certainly never been a uh, this week in spaceflight history and then uh, John Young won a Medal of Honor for commanding the first uh, space shuttle mission, uh, STS-1. And so that's seven people. There were also two more who did not end up winning Medals of Honor. Uh, Jim McDivitt, um, who commanded uh, Apollo 9 and then went on to become the manager of lunar landing operations. And he was actually the Apollo spacecraft program manager from uh, 69 to 72. And then finally, Elliot C., who never got to fly in space because he was killed in the T-38 crash in 1966, which, you know, was a disaster that shouldn't have happened. And it probably changed the way that our space program, I mean, uh, you know, uh, obviously Apollo 1 had more of an impact on our space program. But, you know, who knows what our space program would have looked like if Elliot C. would have been able to fulfill his career. So there you go. That's that's this week in spaceflight history. All right. So what's our hopefully easier clue for next week? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if it's easier. Um, there are going to be some people who get this right away and some people who simply are not going to get it. So next week in 1980, and I have an audio clue for you. Here it goes. So we grabbed this, uh, this ratchet like you would pull out of your toolbox, but uh, quite larger, if you can picture it was a monstrous thing because it was about three feet long. It had about a three-foot-long handle, and the socket weighed anywhere from five to eight pounds. It was a big socket, so it was a, a large piece of steel. I'm not sure about that one, um, except that I do know that whoever that was is from the Midwest. Uh, that's all I can tell you so far. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great, what was that, like Illinois somewhere, Sackett, in some other words there. Yeah, Sackett. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've never gotten any of the clues, but I'm still keeping out hope. So that's your audio clue. Um, and if you think you know what that might be in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. The SLS mobile launcher has been rolled out to the pad. So this is the mobile launcher being rolled out on top of the crawler, right? Right. So the SLS mobile launcher, I mean, I've always thought about it as being very similar to the shuttle's mobile launcher, but actually it's a totally different structure. This is actually, it was part of the Constellation project 
um, and has since been uh, heavily modified. Um, but basically, the SLS ML, the mobile launcher, has got a bunch of testing to do before uh, Exploration Mission 1 can happen. So they installed it on CT2. And by the way, CT2 uh, is the primary crawler transporter for SLS, at least for the first two missions. Um, and so it's been heavily modified. They expect it to last easily into the 2020s. And they also did some other things to, to help it uh, do its job better. I don't know exactly what they did. CT1 is also going to be modified, but it's not going to be the primary transporter for for the first two missions so anyway like i said the mobile launcher is modified from constellation and some of the big things they had to do was they had to add a crew access arm they had to add you know a bunch of service arms including uh one for the uh, icps the in uh interim cryogenic propulsion stage then they had to modify the tail service masts to add locks and lh2 umbilicals and so after all of this work the kind of this big milestone that just happened was that they rolled it out to pad 39b and you know 39b is undergone extensive modification as well um, right now they're calling it a clean pad because they took down all the uh, shuttle structures um, and then they installed all of the sls ground support structures like the umbilical hookups and the electrical hookups and that kind of thing so this this big milestone was just rolling out to the pad for a couple of days to do fit checks um, while they were there they also tested the sound suppression system you know the the water deluge uh, system something that i thought was pretty cool was uh, they didn't have time to use their um, laser guidance system to put the uh, mobile launcher, you know, in exactly the right place. So they literally did it by hand. You know, the crawler transporters literally have steering wheels in the front. Um, and so they they did this by hand and they actually got within an inch of the correct placement, which even they were impressed with. That is remarkable. Isn't that cool? <laughs> So they did a couple of days of testing, um, and then it actually just rolled back to the VAB, the Vertical Assembly Building. It just did that as we're recording Sunday morning. And so it'll stay in the VAB for seven months. And then after that, it will go back to the pad for four months of testing, where they'll be testing the umbilical hookups and all that. And then after that, it's back to the VAB to go pick up an SLS and then back to the pad to launch it. So this this is like the last, you know, one of the last big milestones that we have. Rolling back out to the pad, I think, will probably be the next uh, the next big milestone. But we're, I mean, we're getting close. You know, who who knows how many more delays we'll see, but we're getting close. At this point, do you think that um, I can't remember your last? I mean, we've kind of like pulled each other for some time now. Do you think <laughs> like what are your thoughts on launching or the launch of SLS? Uh, happening more or less on schedule do you think it will happen because there are oh, still no. some people who don't think that it will happen at all but i mean you think that it's going to lift off right uh you know they've been plunging forward and the i mean there's been a huge show of support from you know nasa and uh congress to to get this thing going so yeah i, I mean it doesn't look like they're going to give up on it at this point I, I don't think it's going to fly on schedule i think it's going to be delayed for quite a while but pro I don't think it's likely that it's going to be delayed indefinitely anymore. I agree. From what I've seen, I think it's just going to be, they just keep pushing it back. And it's always seems to be a number of years, each uh, delay every couple of years. You know? So so do you have a, a guess on when you think it's actually going to fly then? I have no idea. So, so, I'm, I'm more extrapolating from the missions I'm familiar with and how they usually tack yeah. on, you know, <laughs> like JWST, for example. Ugh. Okay. So yeah, I know. I know. 
JWST is like the one that we're all cheering for as it gets delayed and SLS were like, oh, um, okay. So, uh, June, 2020 is when it's currently planned to launch. I'm guessing at least another year of delays, if not more. Yeah. I'd say that that's probably reasonable. I'm not going to disagree, but I, I mean, there are, there are those who think that it, I think who still think that it will not lift off at all. Like it just, it's just not going to happen. I mean, yeah, who, who knows? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't put huge amounts of money, but I'd put a little bit of money on it actually flying at this point. So are you saying that you think that it's more likely that it won't ever launch? No, no, I, I would give it better than even odds that it actually flies, but I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't like bet my life savings on it actually flying. Yeah, I think that was more a statement about how conservative you are with gambling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay, yeah, that, that also uh, is something to consider. Yeah. So one thing I did not know until you mentioned it is that they actually positioned this thing with laser guidance. I always thought that maybe somebody just drove it up there, but now that you mention it, so is that to say that the thing drives itself? Um, no, I, I think it. I think it gives feedback to the operator. Do you know why they didn't? have the laser guidance on this? It, it it slows them down. They were just doing fit checks. So they're like, hey, you know, you get it within a foot, we're good. Yeah. So moving on then, uh, our next story is uh, Exos, uh, the Exos or Exos launch. Did we mention this a few weeks ago? I think so. Yeah, I think we did. Okay. Yeah, the one, it got... It got hit right away, right? Right after the launch, kind of torqued around a bit. Yeah, so um, this was the SARGE rocket, which um, stands for Suborbital Autonomous Rocket with Guidance or just SARGE. So yeah, it's not the best acronym. They kind of had to borrow the E from the end of the word guidance. Um, that's kind of like cheating to me. But anyway. Yeah, but SARGE without an E looks Sarg, disgusting yeah. for some reason. <laughs> yeah, so this was a launch that happened a couple weeks ago at uh, Spaceport America. Spaceport America. Yep, yeah. out in New Mexico. So the launch of this vehicle... Um, right from the get-go something seemed to go wrong so there's a youtube video that you can watch and in fact i watched the video and i saw because there aren't too many comments that uh the chief operating officer actually commented to somebody who asked a question so according to news sources and according to i guess youtube what he said was um <laughs> that the vehicle was like sitting on top of a um stool and that stool was not bolted down because they actually had to weigh lock loads as it was being fueled up so i guess that that means that the stool was pretty much like sitting on top of a scale of some sort or like several devices that were measuring weight because if you bolted the thing down to the ground obviously you can't measure weight because it's being held in place um so i'm, I'm not quite sure how it works in terms of the mechanics like i don't have any schematics to look at but basically it you know lifted off and it kind of kicked it to the side and it sort of struck the launch tower that caused a torque and the whole thing veered off by about 13 degrees but it very quickly corrected i guess the way to think about this and tell me if i'm wrong here because i'm trying to picture exactly what caused that torque is that it's sort of like if you were standing on top of a skateboard and then you try to kick in one direction and it kind of fell out from under you except maybe the opposite of that i'm not sure how to conceptualize this um how does that impart a torque my guess is that I, I just kind of visualize that when the engine burns, it's not going to be perfectly symmetric, you know, radially. And since it's firing with so much force, that metal, you know, stool or whatever can go and get flung out whichever direction happened to get pushed a little more than the other. So the way that that imparts torque to the rocket is I think that the stool hit the launch rail and therefore the launch rail deflected a little bit and that kind of uh, just pointed the rocket off center just a little bit. I could totally be wrong. My thought is that since the top of the rocket was like above the launch rail, if you knock the launch rail, it's only going to pull the 
the bottom to the, the bottom. side, and then when the bottom is released, then it's you know pointed off center. But I mean, it, it, the mm-hmm. launch looked gorgeous. Like, yeah, it deflected, but it it corrected just just fine. I mean, as as good guidance software, you know, should expect you to. Okay, so good guidance software, but then uh, the next problem they had was about 38 seconds after liftoff, they lost their GPS signal, or I guess rather Sarge lost its GPS signal, and so that triggered an automatic shutdown of the engines. It lasted only 38 seconds, but it was supposed to be somewhere between 62 and 65 seconds, which is a little bit surprising that that's the number that was given because I thought it would be like either 62 or 65 or somewhere in between. But I guess that goes back to why they were trying to measure the LOX loads, right? So um, it seems to be that fueling this thing and knowing exactly how much fuel you are loading up, that's a bit of an issue that they're trying to gauge that and they're having a little bit of trouble finding out exactly what they have on board before they launch. So it's a 62 to 65 second burn that should have gotten them up to about 80 kilometers in altitude, but instead it just made it to 28. But actually based on that performance, the COO said that uh, according to that, the, the vehicle could have made it up to 90 kilometers, so almost at the Carmen line. So that's not bad. Um, it's just that they lost that GPS signal. Do you think that that's for ground tracking or for the vehicle itself to know its own trajectory and that's why it aborted because i think that both are important and you would have to abort in both cases yeah yeah i think both are important but remember that this thing uh glides back down to the ground on a say on a parasail so it definitely needs to know its own position so that it can fly back home so it seems pretty reasonable that they're going to rely primarily on gps for the altimeter and it seems reasonable that if you lose your altimeter you're going to shut down early because if the vehicle does not know where it is i was just wondering if the ground knows exactly where it is because they would have to track it as well because if it you know yeah. veers off course then they would have to abort the mission and i guess they just shut it down and they don't have any way of actually blowing the thing up that might be worse in this case because they're not launching over you know in ocean um, this is mm-hmm. out in the middle of the desert. So yeah, I suppose that means that you do want to keep it all in one piece, which is something that I hadn't considered. You know, you don't want to like actually try to blow the whole thing up when you're flying over land. The times that you use a launch abort are generally if your rocket is not flying over the water anymore. If that happens, you are going to do a launch abort. You're going to blow the rocket up instead of letting it smash into the ground. I, I, I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to be splitting it up into lots of small shrapnel, but... I would rather get hit with 10 pieces of small shrapnel than one giant rocket, right? I'd rather spread that area out and have each structure or potentially each vehicle or person take a small number of shrapnel instead of potentially one thing taking it all. Not only that, but there's also propellant on board, and that's that's really the dangerous part. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like when launching from the coast and if the thing fears over land that's usually still restricted land. I mean, there are no civilians just standing underneath it because they would abort before it ever got that far. Ditto the middle of the desert. Yeah, I suppose so. Yes, they have a lot of range clearance or something. Yeah, arcade engineer in the chat saying it's about a ton, so that'd be a pretty big boom if it landed (laughs) in one piece without using the parachute. So getting back on course, uh, the GPS did come back online. There's no word on exactly when that happened. I don't know if it was just before touchdown or whatever, but I can assume that It was once the thing was coming back down, the GPS suddenly started working again. There was this inspection done and there weren't like any malfunctions found. It seemed to work just fine. That is a bit mysterious. But other than that, it it seemed to have been a successful launch. At least, you know, that's uh, the officially released statement. And yeah, they think that they can get, they can even get a higher altitude. And I think that that's because they're still playing around with the LOX loads, you know, and uh, there's a a lot of mention of LOX. I don't know what the fuel is. Is this like an alcohol thing or RP1 or what? Like, I want to say 
it's alcohol because, well, just because it's a sounding rocket, and that's kind of what goes through my brain, but I don't know. It's a LOX ethanol propulsion. Okay. There we go. Yes, so yeah. they're still playing around with those numbers, and they think that they can get up to 100 kilometers, and uh, yeah, that's a good lofty goal, I guess. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like how it shows how important the acceleration is in burning for the full length. Right? Mm-hmm. They burned for two-thirds of what mm-hmm. they targeted and only made it to one-third the altitude. Yeah. So anyway, yep, that's Exos. Time to do some short and sweet, and we got three of them this week, so one for each of us. And what's our first one, Dennis? So, Shizuoka University in Japan and partners will test Stars Me, the world's first space elevator prototype in orbit. Launching as part of the payload on the upcoming HTV-7 ISS resupply mission, the prototype consists of two CubeSats linked by a 10-meter cable. A mini elevator will travel from one CubeSat to the other along the cable while being monitored by cameras. Uh, next up, Kepler resumes its science mission. Yay! On August 29th, Kepler was put back into service after being put into sleep mode due to an issue with one of its eight thrusters. Engineers have devised a method of simply not using that thruster, thus eliminating any further issues. This will make precision pointing of Kepler slightly more difficult. It is suspected that the thruster misfiring is due to low fuel levels which are hard to gauge for the spacecraft. If it is indeed the case, then the other thrusters should start showing symptoms as well. Lastly, the ISS leak was caused by a drill, not MMOD. So here's, I guess, the final verdict. Roscosmos has confirmed that the leak that occurred on the Soyuz spacecraft was caused by a hole that was drilled from the inside. Photos show clear signs of a scuffed surface adjacent to that hole, indicating a skipping drill bit. Dmitry Rogozin, who was the director of Roscosmos, said it was done by a human hand. There are traces of a drill sliding along the surface. He also vowed to find the person responsible for the error as a matter of honor, whether it was caused on the ground or in orbit. So I guess he suspects that maybe it was caused by somebody on station, which yeah, is a bullshit. weird thing to read. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe I that he said that. But anyway, that's that is the quote on ground or in orbit. That is so strange. <laughs> he thinks that an astronaut maybe. No, no, no. He he's he's just saying that. I don't think there's any way he believes that. This was some poor schmuck in the factory. <laughs> Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we got a really good correction and uh, elaboration from Eric Blood on opportunity. This is really cool. So he, you know, had more than a couple things to say because we were. Well, yeah, we're at least I was a little bit confused as to how the whole active and passive listening thing goes for opportunity and why it might be shut down early because there's a lot of different variables that are sort of on the table here, like as to how GPL comes to its decisions. So I think that this really clarifies that. Yeah, so Ben, you have in the show notes here. First things, though, we should clarify that Eric Blood does not work for JPL anymore. So he used to. He he said, yeah, he said he had two disclaimers. First, he doesn't work at JPL anymore. And second, he really wants opportunity to last as long as possible. (laughs) But then he had some good reasons why why it might not. Um, so first, he told us some more information about the hardware required to talk to Opportunity. So first off, Opportunity normally gets an uplink every morning, DFE, direct from Earth. And that's just a, a really small little payload that, you know, helps make sure that every everything's synchronized and it's got some commands and they're ready to go. And then most afternoons on Mars, so, you know, we're talking about 
Mars morning and afternoon. It will downlink, but it won't downlink to Earth. It'll downlink via an orbiter. And I didn't realize that they downlink or that they use the orbiters almost every day. I, I for some reason my assumption was that most of the communications were direct from Earth. And uh, Eric pointed out that you know usually that's Mars Odyssey that's doing that downlinking. Um, so without a clock and without direct to Earth communication, and this was something that we had talked about. Um, without those two things, Opportunity cannot talk to an orbital relay, which was something that we were kind of discussing. And yeah, that that's not an option. And on top of that, it can't use its uh, high-gain antenna, which gimbals and points directly at Earth. Um, if it doesn't know what time it is, it doesn't know where Earth is in the sky, and it definitely doesn't know where a fast-moving relay satellite is, right? So uh, in order to uh, regain communication with uh, with the rover, we only have one option left, which is the rover low gain antenna, the RLGA. And if we can talk to it on the low gain antenna, then we can uh, reset the clock and basically tell the rover what the heck is going on um, and get it up to speed. Eric Blood included a link to a PDF, which will be in the show notes, um, which talks more about the uh, low gain antenna. So if you're going to talk to a low gain antenna, you need a very powerful transmitter. So in this case, Eric isn't 100% sure on this, but this sounds right to me as well, as if my opinion makes a difference here. <laughs> um, he says that likely they're only going to be able to use the 70 meter dishes. Um, so each of the DSN stations uh, has one 70 meter dish and then a, a number of 34 meter dishes. And so 70 meter dishes that we're going to need to actually talk to the Logan antenna. And, and the nice thing about this is David, uh, I think you brought this up is that the 70 meter dishes are capable of multiple spacecraft per aperture communications where they can actively downlink information from multiple spacecraft uh, at the same time, if they're close to each other. And then mm -hmm. one of the things that, I think we also said last episode is that they're only able to uplink to one spacecraft at a time. So you can listen to a bunch, but you can only talk to one at a time. So potentially that's uh that's a benefit. The length of the passive listening may be extended by the fact that we're able to listen to multiple spacecraft at a time. So uh, the next thing that uh, he points out is the conflict of resources, which is something that I had suspected might be an issue mm -hmm. at JPL because, you know, obviously you only have so many people, so many people and so many dishes as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I guess maybe that is the bigger issue is actually DSN. But yeah, Mars 2020 is coming up and that's a big mission. They need to prepare for that. I think my suspicion was that maybe, you know, they just wanted to devote resources to other projects. But to be honest, I, I hadn't I don't think I'd consider this one specifically. So what he points out is that the InSight Marco 1 and Marco 2 will be arriving at Mars in late November. And then he goes on to say that typically at the end of a cruise mission, the mission requests 24-7 DSN support. So this is for things, you know, like last minute parameter updates, software updates, trajectory correction maneuvers, which are a big deal, obviously, when you're you know right. trying to enter Mars orbit. So this is going to be, you know, a pretty busy time coming up. And if they have to worry about opportunity, well, then they might not be able to devote all those resources or as many as they would like. Again, like I said last week, opportunity has been around for a long time. It's it's already outlived its expected lifetime by I don't know how many years. Yeah, no, I think uh, my favorite bit of trivia about opportunity is that it's already completed I mean, years ago, completed a marathon on the surface of Mars. Mm. But uh, I think a small correction, the Marcos are uh, flybys. Oh, they're flybys? I thought they were going in orbit. Yeah, no, I think they're just going to zip on. Well, okay, so what is it? You'll have to remind me. What is it that the Marcos are going to be doing? I don't even remember. 
I thought they were communications relay satellites. Yeah, but but, but during the uh, the entry and like descent and landing phase for Insight, oh. so they'll be there to guide it and then you know peace out. Yeah, during Insight's uh, EDL operations, the lander will transmit information in UHF to MRO. So the Marcos receive UHF and receive and transmit X band. Cool. Yeah. So they're they're like demonstrations for communications relays. Dude, that's so cool. I just I I love CubeSats and small small satellites so much. And aren't these the first ones that are going beyond just you know low Earth orbit or I guess mm-hmm. Earth orbit to another planet? Yeah. I don't even think we've put a CubeSat around the moon. Well, I mean, inside is obviously outside of the outside of earth orbit now so okay well okay <laughs> yeah they pre- present tense is the is the correct tense here so anyway um so eric says that because of this and given you know the timing that uh he imagines that the dsn resource conflict may be part of the reason for the active listening versus the passive listening plan for opportunity and then he also says that that all being said uh if this resource scarcity was one of the reasons for opportunity's short recovery effort i think the engineers on both projects would be happy to work with each other to find a way to de-conflict the resources enough to allow for a more thoughtful recovery effort. So I don't know, that sounds reasonable to me. I'll take his word on that. All right, now time to move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got two launches and a couple other things, a parachute drop and a spacewalk. All right, so spoiler alert. Well, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, so the uh, first uh, launch coming up is a Delta II in the 7420 configuration. I'm not too familiar with how that works with Delta IIs. I know it's been explained and I've forgotten. And it's actually 7420-10. I'm assuming that the four stands for two strap-on boosters. The first digit is either a six or seven denoting the 6000 or 7000 series Delta. The second digit indicates the number of boosters. The third digit is always a two. It denotes the second stage has an, uh, an AJ-10. Before the 600 series, they used a different engine. Um, so now that's always a two. Then the last digit denotes the third stage. Uh, zero is no third stage. Five indicates a PAM. And a six indicates a star 37 FM. And then the dash 10 indicates a 10-foot diameter fairing. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. And that is launching the ISAT-2. And that's launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base with a launch window of 1246 UTC through 1326 UTC. And again, that is on the 15th. So I guess that's a little under an hour. And ISAT-2 is a NASA Earth observation mission for measuring ice sheet elevation and sea ice freeboard. I'm not sure what that is, as well as land topography and vegetation characteristics. So sea ice freeboard board what is sea ice freeboard what does that mean does anyone know my guess is that's referencing that when the sea ice forms it kind of just extends it's got water underneath it and so it's just kind of like this i guess board of ice sitting around there <laughs> i've not a, i haven't heard that before yeah uh sea ice freeboard is the difference between the height of the surface ice and the water in open leads oh so in other words yeah thickness to try to the thickness yeah, of the ice yeah mm-hmm. exactly okay I said too is going to be great because I know there's there's some you know semi controversies about what exactly the Antarctic ice sheet's doing, yeah. And so getting that up there and getting these measurements is going to be awesome. I'm really yeah. excited. So also launching is a PSLV XL, which will be carrying the SSTL S1 and Nova SAR S, which is the latter is a radar imaging instrument, and so uh, developed between the British. Uh, government and a satellite manufacturer and the uh, SSTLS1 satellite uh, built by the same company is going to be sort of you know 
high-res imaging of the uh, uh, the Earth. And so these will be getting launched from the Satish Dhawan Space Center, first launch pad, on September 16th at 1615 UTC. And it's got a launch window of four hours. And then we've got some other really cool stuff. So on September 12th uh, is the final Orion spacecraft parachute drop test. So that's going to be broadcast on NASA TV. So that's September, uh, Wednesday the 12th at uh, 10, 15 a.m. Eastern time. And then on the uh, NASA TV list is also... Uh, rendezvous of HTV7, but that's been delayed. Hopefully, HTV7 uh, will launch this week, but we're not exactly sure when. And then the other really cool thing is Tuesday the 18th, there is a U.S. Uh, spacewalk preview briefing. These are so much, every time they come up, I always say you got to watch them because they're so much fun because the Doug animations are what really make it good. Um, so uh, yeah, that's a preview briefing on uh, Tuesday, the 18th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And the corresponding uh, spacewalk is going to happen uh, next Thursday after the next episode airs. So we'll re we'll remind you about that we'll reread the uh the spacewalk info on the next show Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events and that means it's time to deal with the show and we'd like to thank ronald jenkies and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show too leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for patreon affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit or orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com That is all, so we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.